Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 to 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your son's sake, amen. Amen. Well, some of you know for the last couple of weeks, it's been a very busy season for me, and I've had some anxious moments. I'm thankful for your prayers, thankful for those who reached out to check on me. And what's amazing is that in God's providence, this passage had already been scheduled for me to preach on this weekend. And as I dug into this passage over this last week, I'm just thankful to the Lord for how he speaks to us through his word and brings encouragement. I was greatly encouraged by these few verses this week. And it is my prayer that all of you here this morning would be encouraged as well. A little background to the letter of Hebrews. We're not exactly sure who is the author of Hebrews. It doesn't say, like some of the pastoral epistles do. Paul kind of announces that it's him. So some people think that it is the Apostle Paul who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some people think it's Apollos. But in reality, we don't know, and I'm not going to make any guesses this morning. This letter was written to Jewish Christians who were greatly suffering for their faith in Jesus, and some of them were tempted to give up. Some of them were tempted to give up and go back to the old ways of the Jewish rituals and customs. They were not feeling like the Christian faith was worth it all. And so they were tempted to turn back. This letter was written to encourage the church to hold fast to the faith and to press on to full maturity. And one of the things that is unique about the book of Hebrews is that it has these warning passages. There are some really strong things that the author says in these warning passages to warn those who are in danger of falling away. But in these warnings, we actually see a pastoral heart in the author. Though he had to be the bearer of bad news, he didn't want this to be true of those in this congregation. And he was warning them because there was still time for repentance and faith. And in the verses that we're looking at this morning, they come right after one of the most famous warning passages in the Bible. So the author knows that some true believers may have had some doubts. They might have heard that strong warning and thought he was speaking about them. And so he turns to them to give them encouragement. For those of you who are taking notes this morning, I've divided this passage into three different sections. And so in verse 9, we're going to see a word 
of assurance. In verse 10, the evidence of assurance. And then verses 11 and 12, the call to persevere in assurance. So a word of assurance, the evidence of assurance, and the call to persevere in assurance. And the main point, what I hope you see that the text is saying is this. Love for God's name and service to his saints gives us assurance of salvation. Love for God's name and service to his saints gives us assurance of salvation. Our love that we have for God and our acts of service towards others serve as evidence of our salvation. We're reminded here in this passage that God doesn't forget our work. This should encourage us and bring much assurance. Let us look at our first section, a word of assurance. It's really interesting that after one of the strongest warnings, we encounter one of the most encouraging and assuring passages in the book of Hebrews. In verses 4 to 8, the, the writer gives these strong warnings to his readers about the dangers of falling away from Christ. He warns those in the church who have observed, they've tasted, they've experienced the blessings of God, and yet they were not true believers. And in verses 7 to 8, he gives this illustration of, the, of this piece of land in which the rain has fallen onto it and the land has taken in all of that rain. And there are two different results from that. The first result, if the land produces a crop that is useful, if it's fruitful, then it receives a blessing from God. But if it doesn't bear fruit, but bears thorns and thistles, the writer says it is worthless and deserves to be burned. That's a strong warning. But the purpose of this illustration is to warn the Hebrew Christians and the unbelievers in this church that by merely observing and tasting and experiencing the blessings of God, that doesn't mean that a person is saved. Those are means that help lead to salvation, but they don't do so apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation comes by being born again. We've been seeing that constantly in the Gospel of John through a genuine spiritual rebirth by the power of the Holy Spirit. Salvation comes where we see that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and we believe in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. So the author here has a deep concern for the spiritual well-being of this congregation. And so he doesn't shy away from warning them of the, the dangers that were very real that would cause them to fall away. But at the same time, he's very aware that these strong words may have caused anxiety among those who were genuine Christians in the church. Because every Christian can say, there are thorns in my life. We, we probably all should admit that we are all are far away from where we really should be in our relationship with Jesus. And we can get to a place of doubting. We can get to a place of despair and think, well, how do I know that I won't fall away? 
And if you have a concern about that, I just want to let you know this morning, it's a good sign. It's a good sign that you're concerned. Because those who aren't concerned, who don't listen to the warnings, those are the ones who are in danger. If you're concerned, if you're worried, draw closer to Jesus. But there's also other ways to be assured. In verse 9, he changes his focus from warning to encouragement. Look at verse 9. He says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. The author here isn't taking back the words that he had just said, and he's also not sugarcoating the warning that he just gave. The warning pertains to those in the church who were not genuinely saved. And he hopes that the few in that church who aren't saved, who may be tempted to fall away, will take the warning to heart. But he is also saying to those in the congregation that he's writing to, specifically in these verses, that he feels sure that they are not like those in verses 4 to 8. He is sure of better things. Better things. Things that belong to salvation. Now, the Bible is clear that only the Lord knows who for certain, who is truly saved and who's not saved. But here we have the author explaining that he sees signs, he sees evidences in his congregation that some of them are saved. One commentator on this verse gives this paraphrase. He says, Beloved fellow Christians, though we have been speaking about these awesome and fearful warnings to unbelievers, we know that far better things apply to you. You have the fruits of salvation, not of unbelief. These warnings to apostates and potential apostates are put in this letter to you because these people are in your midst. But he says, in your case, beloved, beloved. You notice that? He calls them beloved. This is the first time in the book of Hebrews that he calls them beloved. He's letting them know that they are close to his heart in an effort to soothe their fears and show his love for them. He calls them beloved. He reveals his deep affection for them and his pastoral devotion to them. And it's clear here that the author knows these people well, and he wants them to know of his love for them and for them to be encouraged. His words here, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. This is an encouragement that he has seen evidence of salvation in their lives. But how is he sure of better things? What makes him so confident? Verse 10 gives us the answer. He sees the love they have for God's name and how they serve the people of God. The love they have for God's name and how they serve the people of God. We've seen a word of assurance. Now let's look at the evidence of assurance. How can we be assured of our salvation? Well, first and foremost, as we read the scriptures, right? The scriptures testify. God assures us through his word that we are saved. We also find assurance through the Holy Spirit. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 16 says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. But also there can be outward evidences that give us assurance of salvation. Here the writer focuses on the ministry that his readers have shown to one another in the church as a good sign of spiritual life. He says, we are sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He could see how their lives had changed from focusing on themselves and now are focused on others. And he says, I see fruit in your life. Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. I mean, that's, that's an encouraging verse. Personally, I feel like this verse gets overlooked every time someone brings up Hebrews chapter 6. Just, just because it's such a serious warning, sometimes these verses of encouragement, the pastors don't have time to be able to expound on them. But this morning, we're going to expound on it because I found great encouragement from this verse, and I know that you will as well. God is not unjust. God is just. He knows exactly what he's doing because he has your spiritual well-being in mind always. And the writer here says that he remembers your work. He remembers the service that you have done for him and his name and how you've helped others in need. And I don't know about you, but I'm often tempted to think that God doesn't notice the things that I do in service to him. Sometimes I'm tempted to think that maybe the things that I do don't really matter much to him. But the point of Hebrews 6.10 is for us to know that God sees and he treasures every prayer that we pray. He sees and treasures every act of service done in his name. He sees and treasures every response to obey him. And now to be clear, we aren't talking about works-based salvation. Roman Catholics love this verse. That's not what it's talking about here. Our love shown for his name and our service to the saints are the fruits of salvation, not works towards salvation. Where there is salvation, these characteristics will follow. We are saved by grace alone apart from works. But we are called to works. And in reality, the works that we do are actually a result of the Spirit's work in our lives. So it's his work. But what an encouragement that God does not forget. He doesn't overlook the work and the love that we have shown for his name in serving the saints. He doesn't forget. We've been shown so much grace. Think about this. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, God says, I am he 
who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So he says, I will not remember your sins. In Christ, God forgets all our sins. But here in Hebrews chapter 6, we are told that he remembers every act of love that we ever expressed to him. That's amazing. For those who are redeemed in Jesus, God forgets their sin, but he doesn't forget our service to him in serving the saints. Even when we forget the times in which we have served the saints, God doesn't forget. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve that. And yet God showers us with his grace and love. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, God remembers our labors of love and service. Be encouraged. He won't forget us. He is just. He will not forget our work and our service. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, I am sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And notice he mentions their work, which points back to the illustration that he gave in verses 7 to 8. He is able to say that he sees spiritual fruit in their lives. A Christian's works are not what saves them or keeps them saved, but they are evidences of salvation. James tells us that faith without works is dead. It's not real. It's not genuine. Our faith is demonstrated by our works. Love for and service to the saints is an evidence of salvation. In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. By what? By how you love one another. But notice the motivation for their work and service towards the saints. It's the love that you have shown for his name. That's the key. That's important. We don't just serve the saints just because it's something that we do. We do it because of our love for God, because of our love for his name. How do you show your love for God? Well, you show it by coming to church to worship him, right? You, you show it by making time in your day to, to read the scriptures and pray and by living a life in obedience to his will. But most tangibly, Christians show their love for God by their loving ministry to other Christians. The apostle John put it this way, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If we have come to know God and his love for us, then this will result in us showing gratitude and love toward him by sacrificially giving ourselves for God's people. 
This is why the writer of Hebrews is excited to see that his people are busy helping one another. He is sure of better things because of this. But as important as loving our brothers and sisters in Christ is, loving God is way more important. In fact, without loving God first and foremost, we're not able to love others like we should. The key to true Christian service is a deep love for Jesus. We are to love his name. Think about when Jesus restored Peter after Peter had denied him three times. He didn't ask Peter if Peter loved the sheep. He asked Peter three times, do you love me? And then after Peter responded, then he commissioned Peter to feed his sheep. Our service to Jesus Christ must be based on a love for him first and foremost. We can never truly love someone unless we properly love Jesus. And it's very easy to serve in ways that are motivated by sinful things. We can be motivated by a fear of men. We can serve because we want recognition, because we want to feel needed, because maybe we're serving just out of legalism. Maybe we think that our works are going to save us. But all these are sinful reasons to serve. So my question to you this morning is, is your service towards others motivated by your love for Jesus or is it motivated by something else? I often have to admit, I admitted to Jacob earlier today that that convicted me. A lot of times my service is motivated by something else. These faithful believers whom the writer of Hebrews is writing to loved the name of the Lord. This was proof that their faith was the real thing and that they were ministering to each other because they loved Jesus. One commentator says this, the genuineness, so the genuineness, the authenticity, and the effectiveness of the ministry that we have towards one another as saints is directly related to the love that we have for Jesus. The more that we love God, the more we will want to do his will. And so our concern should not be, I need to just muster up enough energy to love these people. That's not the motivation. That's not where we find the ability to serve people the way that we should. What we need to do is draw closer to Jesus more and more. When our love for him is right, our love for others will be as well. And a lot of burnout stems from the fact that we've not maintained our devotion to Jesus. If we let other things crowd out or take priority to having time alone in his word and in prayer, if we don't think about the gospel and what Jesus has done for us on the cross, the work of Loving others will drain us. It will burn us out. Ministry is having your cup full to the brim 
with God's love. And then it's spilling over to others. But then this leads us to ask, well, how do we serve? How do we serve the saints? Well, very simply, we can say that we can serve by using the gifts that the Lord has given us. All right, the gifts that he has given us should be for his church, should be for his glory and not ourselves. Whether those gifts are counseling, showing mercy, helping, teaching, preaching, administration, there's many more. And yet at the same time, there is much service in the Bible in which we're called to that has nothing to do with our spiritual gifts. Praying for others. Rebuking sin. Seeking restoration. Confessing to one another. Giving to the needs of the saints. If you're a Christian, you are called to serve in these ways. And specifically, our text says that these Christians did that. They served the saints. They served the saints. I'm sure many of you here already know that that word saints refers to fellow believers, fellow Christians. All true Christians are saints or holy ones. I know that most of us don't often think like that. <laughs> we don't often view ourselves as saints. But if you are in Christ, you are a saint. We are holy ones in Jesus, even if we are unfaithful, even if we act unsaintly. And we are called to serve the saints around us. Service is an essential part of the Christian life. And in this passage, the author writes that not only have these readers served the saints, but they are continuing to do so even as he's writing to them. They were bearing good fruit. Their work and the love that they had shown for the name of the Lord in serving the saints was evidence of their salvation. All Christians are called to this. But when the fruit of love and service is missing in the life of someone who professes Jesus Christ, that's a dangerous place to be in. It's possible that some of you here this morning may have the wrong impression that only the pastors or the deacons or the directors are the ones who are called to serve the saints. And that's not what the Bible teaches. John Stott says this, all Christians without exception are called to ministry. Indeed, to spend their lives in ministry. Ministry is not the privilege of a small elite group of people, but of all the disciples of Jesus. You will have noticed that I did not say that all Christians are called to the ministry, but to ministry, to service. We do a great disservice to the Christian cause whenever we refer to the pastorate as the ministry. Where does he get that? Well, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul writes that the role of pastors is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Jesus gives leaders to the church to equip the saints, and it is the saints who do the work of ministry 
not only the leaders. And these Christians that this writer to the Hebrews is writing to understood this. Later on in chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, the author gives us a little insight to how they served the saints. He writes, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They endured while serving the saints around them through extreme difficulty and persecution. They had compassion on those who went to prison for their faith, and they were joyful when their personal property was taken from them. I don't know many people today who would be joyful if their things were taken from them because they believed in Jesus. I actually know a lot of people, especially online, who would complain and immediately seek out ways to get their stuff back. Not many people who would be joyful. I think that shows that we all have a long way to go in our sanctification. And also the fact that the things that we own have a stronger grip on us and are more precious to us than Jesus Christ. These folks were joyful, not because they had some weird fascination with being persecuted, but they knew that they had a better possession in Jesus. And so they served the saints in very difficult seasons. They had ministered to the saints in the past, and they were still doing it. And God knew, and God never forgets. And this gave them evidence of assurance. We've seen a word of assurance, the evidence of assurance, and lastly, the call to persevere in assurance. So the writer gives this word of encouragement and assurance since they have love for God's name, since they have served the saints, he is sure of better things. And then in verses 11 and 12, he urges these believers to continue in this. Look at verse 11. As we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The author wants his readers to press onward in the Christian life, to show the same earnestness, to show diligence in order to have the full assurance of hope until the end. I believe the NIV says, to make your hope sure. Basically, he wants his readers to fill up with hope. This is the desire of every true pastor for his flock. That, that his people would not press forward grudgingly, gritting their teeth, but they would know the full assurance of their salvation and know the joy and the peace that are provided to them in Jesus Christ. He says that it's his 
desire or his longing that each one of you, he thinks about each one of the people whom he's writing to. He's concerned about every individual in the church. And it's my heart and Pastor Scott's heart for the same for you all. That you would, with all earnestness in which you are serving Christ now, that you would continue and press onward, that you would endure through suffering, and that you would persevere in loving service to the saints. The danger that these Christians were facing was that they were tempted to become sluggish. Another word for that is lazy. The great enemy of perseverance is laziness. Spiritual laziness is a danger that all of us face. I think in 2020, that was a moment in which some in the church got a little sluggish. Right? Because churches weren't gathering in person, which meant less and less people were needed to be able to put on you know, your streamed worship service. We got comfortable having church in our pajamas and being spectators rather than participants. But that short season is over, church. And now it's time to press on, to no longer be sluggish or lazy in your faith. So that, that you would have full assurance of faith. And so as you grow in the love for his name, find ways to serve the saints. And then the author also encourages them to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. His point is that we should learn what faith and patience are all about through those, through the lives of other Christians around us. He'll go on right after this to speak about Abraham who patiently waited and then he obtained the promise. And then he'll write a little bit later on in chapter 11 and share that big list of the heroes of the faith. A few of them are Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, David, and many more. And his encouragement here is to imitate them, to be imitators, because they had difficulties. They had challenges. They were tempted to go back, but they pressed on. Despite the severe trials and afflictions in their lives, they believed and endured with a full assurance of faith and hope. Look to these examples that we see in the scriptures, but also look to the examples that we've seen all throughout church history. So that means read biographies of people like Martin Luther, George Whitfield, John Newton, Hudson Taylor, Amy Carmichael, Susanna Spurgeon. And not only that, be imitators of the godly men and women in your lives now. We have a great cloud of witnesses in front of us. Be imitators. Look to these great examples of faith and patience and be imitators of them. I'm going to go a little further and say, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus because he is our great example. 
As Hebrews chapter 12 says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, who took the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ is the one who has saved us. We were created in him for good works. He is the one who works in us. And yet at the same time, he is our great example. Church, look to Jesus. So brothers and sisters, I, I hope you're encouraged by this text, that you find assurance of your salvation and you desire to press onward with earnestness. The Apostle Paul says this in Galatians chapter 6, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. The saints around you need you. That's how the Lord designed the local church to be, to be a place where the saints serve the saints. And I'm just going to give you a little shameless plug here. We have many opportunities for you here at Calvary to serve. I don't know how many times we've, we've had a slide go by about the music ministry who's looking for more people to serve in the AV. You know, we're, we're getting more and more children in our children's ministry, and yet we really need more helpers and teachers. We need more people to help us with the worship service and be a part of it. I know Orly is looking for someone with the gift of administration that will someday take over treasurer. So if you have the gift of administration, which I don't have, talk to Orly. But my encouragement to you, if you're a member at Calvary and you're not serving, come talk to me. We'll find a place for you to serve. And for those who have been faithfully serving, which is many of you, and I've been thinking about you as I've read this text. Remember that the motivation for your service to the church and to the saints must come from a love for God's name. And remember, the Lord is not unjust to overlook your work. And the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. Thank you. Continue on. Press forward. And be encouraged because love for God's name and service to his saints gives us assurance of salvation. Amen? Amen. Right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how you both convict and encourage us. Lord, we confess that we have often failed to love your name and serve the saints like we should. We have sometimes served with the wrong motivations. We ask that you would forgive us.
And we are thankful for the fact that we do have forgiveness because Jesus came to serve us by giving up his life as a ransom for us. We are thankful for the assurance that we have in the gospel, in your word, and we are thankful that we can be also assured by the fruits that you produce in our lives, a love for your name and our service towards the saints. Thank you for the reminder that you don't overlook our work and service. Help us to not be lazy, but to be imitators of the godly saints who have gone before us and to look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith.